Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hey, everybody. On today's show, we have Susanna Cole, who has 12 years in property. That is a lot of experience. So there's plenty of lessons here. And actually, I think about 40 minutes in, we speak a lot about the maths of finding a deal, the maths of finding an investor, and just how many meetings, how many touch points, how many estate agents, how many viewings you probably have to do to actually secure one investment, what the average investment is, but also the kind of work you have to do to secure one deal and how these numbers are so important so that you don't look at your process as emotional or subjective. You look at it as objectively following a process that, yay, I'm 12 offers in. Oh, damn it. I haven't got one accepted yet. Well, yeah, it's because you need 50 more to get one accepted. For example, plenty of interesting lessons in this podcast. Susanna has also sourced 45 million pounds worth of property. So let's get into it. Susanna Cole, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's good fun talking about property, isn't it? It really is, you know, and I think I've been following you on Instagram for a while. And one thing I've really noticed is that you have a lot of engagement. And when people ask you questions, you really, you really do answer them properly. You kind of I know we only have a certain limit we can write sort of on Instagram on our stories, etc. But I've noticed that you really like go into detail and help people. And another thing is, I think some of your views, and I, I might be wrong here. I think someone was asking about rent to rent and, and buy to lets, and your <laughs> views were were quite different to what I think most people teach and preach right now, which yes. I agree with. And I was like, oh, it's unusual to see this. But before we get into sort of what you do now and you know the world of of property for you, what were you doing pre property, and what led you into this? Uh, so pre pre property, um, I did enjoy what I did but I also knew I didn't want to be entrapped um so it sounds like I didn't enjoy it and I actually did um but uh, and I'll talk about those jobs in a minute but what led me into it I, I like many of us have always inverted commas loved property I love the creativity of it I love the fact that you take something that's knackered and you pull it back together and you kind of you just tick the box and it's really lovely to live in as well I love so that's all the creative side um I like um nicely designed I'm quite aesthetically driven so if something's jarring physically it, it bothers me until it's put right um just you know some people do and some people don't for me aesthetics really count resonate with aesthetics so that's all the creative side and then the financial side the, the mathematical side I love the fact that there is leverage so 75% of purchasing a house in the early days can be done with a bank and you or with private investment can do 25%. So with private fundraising, there's 100% leverage. And I, I use that leverage time and time again. But I don't love the fact that people continue to preach that you should be very highly geared. Um, so I love the fact that the entry point is reduced because there are organizations or private individuals that will assist you into buying those assets. But then I think you need to smash down your loan to value. Um, I, I love I love high yield. I love properties that bring in over a thousand pound a month per property. Um, that's my I've only got seven properties that don't do that now. Um, and then I love the 
Kim, I love the freedom. Um, I've worked like a crazy thing for 10 years, like like really, really, really incredibly hardworking. And I still do. It, like I worked most of this weekend on some stuff I was just enjoying. But I now, I now have 182 days holiday and 183 days work. And when I work, I work really hard. Um, now, no boss will give you that. Mm. And I love the security. I love, I love the knowledge that if things went wrong, you know, if there was an emergency with either myself or my family, I would just sell a house. And, and, and anything that could be fixed through finance can be sorted. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. there's a lot to love, isn't there? Uh, and then the community. I mean, you know, there's always a couple of grum, you, you know, grumpy grump grumps going, oh, that's nonsense, you can't do it. But I like the fact that in the property community, like you're doing, you can share information and it assists everybody. Everybody wins. And the reason is, I think, because we're not heading towards a pinnacle, a triangle, where like in corporate life, there is only one top job and then there's maybe five vice presidents and then there's, you, you know, so as people climb up the ladder, the rewards reduce in numbers. It's a bit like pass the parcel before everyone made it very fair. You know, there is only one final prize. Whereas in property, I can teach people in my own hometown, like two of my mentees were going to uh, Bristol auctions last week. I was so excited for them because the likelihood of somebody else buying the same property that I'm buying in my location is very small. You know, we did over 200 deals, but uh, there are however many thousands of houses being sold in Bristol every year. So I like the fact that the structure of our industry means people aren't fighting each other generally. It means that we're all better off by sharing knowledge. And I think that's, I mean, I'd love to pretend or say that everyone in property is very nice, but actually it's often because of the way the industry is structured we're not fighting for the same thing. We want the knowledge that can be shared and then the end product, the, the property, is highly likely you and I will never bid on the same house. So there's yeah. an awful lot to like about property. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, you know, that's, I think that's a good way of explaining it, you know, in the, compared to the corporate world where there is that one or two or three top jobs for 100 people in a company. And it's like, well, how are we all going to fit into those three jobs? So, and before you were in property, how long were you working in a... In a corporate job. In a corporate job, I only ever had four, um, and I own. I chose. To, uh, I mean, listen. Not everything in my life is preordained, of course not. But I, I on purpose made the choice to have four jobs. So when I started, I was a. I became um, a mum very early in life, or relatively early in life um, compared to now. So my little first responsibility was born when I was twenty-two, mm. and now she's twenty. Six. <laughs> so don't do the maths, people. <laughs> and and so I was also very interested in fair trade. And, you know, when you're young and in your early 20s, the world is a little bit black and white and it's not fair <laughs> or is fair. <laughs> so I ran a fair trade business. I started um, when my kids were very young because um, because it suited family life. I've always been a bit independent minded anyway. And so I did that for seven years and I grew up from a little pasting table, you know, the wallpaper pasting table mm. up to um, five shops in Scotland. Uh, and we also used to do like, you know, all the, um, all the kind of hippie festivals, you know, traded at Glastonbury, um, uh, Reading, uh, WOMAD. And, and this is 
run, running from kind of the m- middle part of Scotland. So you'd run out. I had a three and a half ton yellow Dodge van, like a proper hippie. But I, the, I was the only hippie with a filing cabinet in alphabetical order screwed into the back. <laughs> and all my other hippie trader festival friends would be like, so Susanna. And I go, well, proportionately from if we take Glastonbury as the marker, you know, WOMAD will give you X percentage of sales. And they're like, oh, thank you very much, mate. <laughs> they go off and smoke something wafty, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, <laughs> so I was a, I was a mechanically, mathematically minded um, hippie that wanted to change the world. And I ran a fair trade business for seven years. And so that really taught me loads, you, you know, um, running a team, running multiple shops, uh, plus multiple events going out every weekend, the importance of Stockton, because I didn't ever borrow a penny. So I grew the whole thing up to five retail shops, plus multiple festival events every weekend through Stockton. So you and literally Monday morning was predicting cash flow. Every, you know, it was all very tight the whole time. And I worked crazy hard. As, uh, but then I also had the flexibility of my family. So I did that until the age of 29, then thought I probably need some corners rubbed off. There's there's a whole load of stuff I don't know that I don't know. Like I know I don't know stuff, but I don't know what it is I don't know. But if I want to progress and develop, I kind of feel I need to, to learn some stuff through professional routes. Uh, and also I'd had a mentor uh, who ran a shop called Habitat. I think they had about 80 shops in Scotland. And he basically said, look, you know, you're only going to be expanding this to a certain level and it simply means more hard work. So he was, you know, I was earning pretty decent money, but he was saying, to be honest, there's not a growth stage that doesn't mean that you're not going to be exhausted. Consider very carefully whether this is the route to go. So he wasn't saying you've got a terrible business. He was saying you're going to be painting yourself into a corner. That was a hard pill to swallow, but he was right. Uh, Mm. So... I then went down to the Scottish borders and became a economic development advisor for the top 14 Scottish cashmere companies. Now, it's a very hidden secret, but Scottish cashmere is the best in the world. So every, pretty much every runway show you see, you know, Yves Saint Laurent, Chanel, everybody uses Scottish cashmere. And then because of their lack of production ability or the lack of you know, fast turnarounds, you, you know, they, they would take two months sometimes to manufacture a jumper that really only takes a day and a half. Um, but um, because they were, they were really, not all of them, there were some very forward-thinking manufacturers, but there were quite a lot that were very entrenched and stuck in and hadn't really introduced things like kaizen you know um so then unfortunately the industry would then buy from italy or china for the actual retail stuff so these guys were super important so i sat at or on board level um working with chief execs and the senior management team of 14 major companies uh, to really help them take the place they should be taking because of the quality of the work. And it was fascinating to understand that the quality of the product was amazing, but their sales and marketing was really behind the times, largely, not all of them, but, but um, and therefore they needed to really upgrade that part to take their rightful place in the, in the high-level fashion industry. So that was interesting because you really understand then that a business – on the one hand, you have some most of the successful textile companies in the world, like Loch Caron, for example. And then you have some that are in what's called special measures, where the bank is basically saying, you're too big to fail, but we're going to, you know, we're going to absolutely whap you with PricewaterhouseCooper um, management reports because you're failing. So we, we can't get our money back from you. So we've got to support you, but you're failing. Um, and really, it's all a question of leadership and, and strategic choices. Same mm. product, same will different strategic choices Hmm. fascinating so 
So, you know, I guess you've had a quite an ex- a, a wide range of experience in jobs, in corporate jobs, which would obviously help in property. So how long have you been in property for? Um, for uh, I'm in my second decade. Can I just jump back for one moment so that your listeners can just have a laugh at me? Um, I, I did four jobs in total, uh, a high growth charity startup. A, I was director of marketing at SS Great Britain, and I also ran Kiss the radio station in Bristol, which was wow. a complete blag. Complete blag. <laughs> I'm like mum of two, right? And my first day where I went up to the London offices, which were all very cool, there was this little black girl. And when I say black girl in Bristol, because we've got such a strong Afro-Caribbean community, that's the kind of language that like my friends are Afro-Caribbean use, so I hope I don't offend anybody. But anyway, there was this little black girl over there with two massive bodyguards, right? And I went, who's that? <laughs> That's how uncool I was. Rihanna. <laughs> and it was at the time that Umbrella was huge. And I'm like, oh, oops. <laughs> so although technically I'd landed this amazing job, I um, uh, yes. <laughs> a little bit embarrassing. I was going to say one of the biggest stars. Um, yes. Especially on the kind of music that Kiss play and you did that. That's <laughs> <laughs> You know, you go home that night and you can't sleep and you want to put the duvet over across your head for embarrassment and there's nothing you can do to undo that embarrassing moment. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So Numpty. moving on from, from that into property, you said your second yes. decade. Yes, yes. Okay, so... I mean, like, I don't know how to even ask because there's so much that yeah, let's you would go. have done and experience. I mean, okay, what has been your strategy throughout the 20 years and how has it changed from what it was 20 years ago? Yes. Um, so I'm probably about 12 years in at the moment. So I'm at the beginning of my second decade. Um my strategy has, well, I suppose, broadly speaking, tools approach things as professionally as, as humanly possible and try and do things to my best best ability as possible. So not a fast throw, you know what I mean? Do, do things right. Um, and then my second strategy, my second way of approaching it is say, well, what's the basic principles of property to buy assets? So that's the referring to the rent to rent, which we might get into later. And rather than get super excited about many, many different shiny penny syndromes, I was very focused in the early days and still am largely on an asset base. Um, So that delayed gratification of buying assets, knowing that those assets produce as passive an income as you can really get almost in the long run. Um, And I think the main reason for that was I was very interested in security rather than huge amounts of fast, profitable cash. Um, So I focused on a couple of things and did them extremely well. So sourcing discounted deals. It was how you buy your asset uh, gives you the launch pad. And if you can buy something BMV, below market value or discounted, or I like to call it wholesale because that makes it easier to understand, then you've already locked in your profit and you've got a huge amount of flexibility of what you can do with that asset. So we got very, very good uh, at finding discounted deals in a high value city like Bristol. And then, of course, you know, and and I was um, head of household, which is a very a polite way of saying single parent because when my kids were young I think there's a lot more social acceptance around the different types of family groups that happen but 20 odd years ago um, it was very frowned upon you know social wars change very quickly and um, 
and 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 so I didn't have all the money to buy 45 million quid's worth of property that I'd got an agreed purchase price of 30 million quid on. It would have been lovely if I did. So then my second strategy or my second strand was to uh, be very credible, which I am in terms of the delivery, and work very well with investors, whether I did joint ventures, raised money myself, or sold those deals on uh, uh, for a fee, which allowed me to earn the money to then buy more houses. So really, it was two strands, and I stuck to it. Buy discounted deals, work well with investors, and I, though it was it was that double flow that really worked, and then you put them together in different ways. And then, you know, I guess where we are now in 2019, are you still following the same course of finding good deals and selling them on or are you now buying them more because you have invested? Oh, yes. Um, No. So so here's the beauty. Now, again, a bit against um, sort of received wisdom, because I do get this, as you say, on my Instagram questions. Um, I'm... I'm now paying off my houses uh, and my investors are paid off. Mm. And that, that, uh, so I have two, it's 20, it's halfway through 2019 on at the moment. I have two houses paid off and I'm gunning for the next one, the next one, the next one. I have um, 2.2 million pounds worth of mortgages to pay off next year and I'm damn determined to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and so, and so it's a be- it's a weird and wonderful and then normalizing feeling. I mean, the first the first time I paid off a house entirely, I went into the bank. You know, you go into the bank loads, don't you, when you buy houses. So I went into the bank, transferred all the money, da-da-da-da-da, everything's fine, everything's normal, what's the big deal? Came out of the bank and then went giddy. And I was a bit like, whoa, <laughs> I get it. Oh, I'm wobbling, you know, just for 30 seconds. The second time it becomes more normal. And now I have a target of uh, uh, three quarters of my houses paid off so so I'm not bringing in new investors I'm paying off now why that's against perceived wisdom well I'm working in on the assets right now so I'm doing about a million pounds worth of development on some of my houses in the next year to two years turning them into flats so I'm going to spend a million pound roughly on developing them and it's going to add two million pounds of asset value to the portfolio so on the one hand, I'm paying off houses, which of course increases my profitability. This is old school. You're talking to an old school business person <laughs> who I use private finance massively in the early days because it's how you grow. But I do not want to stay in that high growth area. I want to then tuck everything under so that my next stage of high growth is entirely from cash flow. So here's my plan. But I bought a bunch of houses. I have a major multi-million pound portfolio with millions of pounds worth of equity. Fabulous. Great. I've got very large rent roll. Fabulous. Great. I'm now paying off houses like they're bowling pins, you know. <laughs> Woohoo! Great. Um, my investors are paid down. Great. And I'm now developing up the assets so that they're worth more. So my loan to value is even lower. And my rental income actually will stay very similar. Okay, great. And that is being done through cash flow. That's not being done through borrowings. But guess what? So that's the, you've stretched the elastic band. It's now come back in. And what do I see afterwards? Oh my God, I'm just going to go to auction every month with tenant, with, with cash flow and buy houses for cash. Delicious. Mm. So, so I'm not saying I'm stopping. I'm simply tucking the bed sheets under 
That's very interesting. And so how are you paying down these mortgages? Is it with cash flow from the portfolio? Yes, um, it's largely with cash flow from the portfolio because uh, I mainly, but not exclusively, have an HMO portfolio and only seven of my houses don't make a £1,000 a month. Um, and, and that's my rule now. So it, it, like, if I'd heard this 10 years ago, I'd have been like, nah, houses don't make a £1,000 a month, but they do. <laughs> so my early little, you know, one bed, two beds, single lets, and that's Katie coming if you can hear her. Um, my early little one bed, uh, two bed single lets were making sort of £250, £300, those classic early investment properties. Mm-hmm. Now, if a roof goes on them, which inevitably at some point, you, you know, you're going to have roofs go, that's a couple of years really before you go, go back to profitability. So as soon as I'm, I think my seventh property became an HMO. Um, and as soon as you get into HMOs and appreciate the high yield, the high profit, it's really, you really kind of go, hang on, I need a rule that every house needs to make a thousand pounds. So I've got service accommodation um, properties that are two bed apartments to make a thousand pounds. And I've got HMOs that make a thousand pounds. And then I still have seven houses that make less than that I look at and go, I should really sell you, but oh, it was such a struggle to buy you. (laughs) So that's the emotional sunk cost. And so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to pay those mortgages off so that they almost make a thousand pounds. (laughs) It's pure cheating. (laughs) And so how many houses do you have in your current portfolio? Uh, That's something I'm not ducking the question. It's just something I don't tend to say the reason um, the, for, for numerous reasons um a it's a little bit private so the majority the majority of my properties are held in my personal name and that's another reason and i'll come back to your question that's another reason to pay houses off because of course the charming george osborne has brought in uh, the section 21 tax which says that i will now be paying a tax despite the fact and he's going to completely ignore the fact that i've got large amount of interest going out every month so that did I did alter my business strategy as a result of the section 21 tax and I moved I would have kept buying more but I moved to paying off and then buying later with cash um, so the majority of my houses in my personal name and then I've got a small number of houses in my limited company which I was doing as buy to sales and just uh, decided to to um uh, keep instead but I have so I, I never tell people not because I'm trying to hide it but because it's a little bit personal to me um and and the, it changes now some people are going to go that's not enough some people are going to go oh my god that's far too many and I'm, I'm never going to be able to relate to you so what I tend to do is say look we did 45 million quid's worth of property over 200 deals and I was the biggest buyer uh, so that proves my experience if you like in property you know at one point we were doing buy to sell and we had 30 buy to sells on at the same time and yeah. I've done yeah I know <laughs> that's more or less what I thought too um and and secondly because it's not the right question I don't mean that rudely to yourself oh um can you hear some of my team have just come in now I'm downstairs they're upstairs <laughs> shall I shall I show you what a great boss I am <laughs> shout shut up you lot <laughs> I'll maybe just let, hey guys just to let you know I'm doing a podcast up here <laughs> that was a um, polite way of doing it yeah yeah the next one will be shut up you lot but no they're brilliant people um and the other the other reason I don't do it is actually from a teaching point of view um so my credibility is established because I know my stuff inside out because we've done hundreds and hundreds of deals but from a teaching point of view it doesn't really matter how many houses somebody's got what matters is their profitability what matters is the efficiency of managing them and what matters is does 
do those properties give that person what they want property to achieve for them? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so weirdly, on the one hand, I feel that my personal wealth is a slightly private matter to me, but my ability to deliver on property is public knowledge. Um, but secondly, if I answered that, then other people are going to compare themselves to it and go, I've got to have the same as her. Mm. And you don't need to. So I've had mentees that are financially free on 10 houses. Um, and that is wholly important to them. And they're like, I don't want to do the crazy number that you've done. And for me, you know, family is really important. My parents who are touchwood are in great health, but in their seventies are really important. You know, um, travel is important. Friends I love are important. So I now do 183 days work and I work really hard. Uh, and then 182 days travel time. Like my mum's coming tonight. I'm super excited, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives me what I want. It gives me fulfilling work and 182 days where I'm traveling or spending time with family and friends. Okay. And no, that's what's important. No, hundred percent. I like that answer. And so, so you live in? Do you live and invest in Bristol? Yes, live in Bristol in city centre. I got a funky office in Bristol in the city centre, and that's where we hold all our training because we want people to see it for real. Mm-hmm. And then every house I own, apart from one, is a maximum seventeen-minute drive time from both my office and my house. Most are five to ten minutes drive time, and I've got houses one minute drive time from each other, which is very useful because that's all about clustering and being as efficient as you possibly can. Then I've got one little baba because my mum and dad live in Glasgow, uh, and my son went to college in Glasgow, and I bought a two-bed flat for my son to be safe when he went to college. So I've got one little baba, a little two-bed flat, very funky little flat in Glasgow, which, to be fair, is 15 minutes drive time from my mum and dad. Now, <laughs> it's illogical. It's the only one I, I bought a grand and a half discounted rather than 25 or 30% discounted because I, I went up there with my son and, and we bought it in a weekend. Um, but I'm keeping it because of family. Um, my mum and dad are very healthy and I'm hanging on to wood like anything. But God forbid anything happened to them. They want to stay in their own house. And if they needed nurses, well, I could be an amazing employer with free accommodation. So it, it suits my stomach. Yeah. See what I mean? And, you know, so you've obviously got lots of experience of HMOs. Now, Bristol yes. is obviously uh, a very up and coming place. Lots of businesses there. Lots of people are yeah. moving there. So there's there's definite reason for HMOs to work there. But what a lot of yes. people say to me and I guess I hear a lot of is like, oh, you know, how do we know that HMO is going to work here? Now, you obviously have quite a few of them, which means that it must work really well. But what gave you the confidence that you were like, right, I'm going to buy X many here and they're going to work and they're going to be great and they're going to be filled? So I'll answer that question. But first, let me tell you now, I, I, as a rule, never back out of a deal. And I've only backed out of two deals, both times because I was scared and both times I'm so annoyed for myself in my <laughs> early days. And that's very poor performance. It's very poor behavior towards the estate agent. And I was mortified both times. And Ash that I worked with, who I worked with for years, was really upset with me quite correctly. But I backed out of my first HMO because I was too scared. How dumb. <laughs> but, but, but So I really, really understand when people are like, oh, HMO, there's so much to think about. There's, there is, but there's not. And what's beautiful about HMOs is it's all laid out for you. So, uh, and, and I will go back into HMOs and how they work, but let's just help people. Go onto your council's website and download. It'll be probably in either the housing department or the planning department. They will have reams and reams of information on what room size you need, how many sinks you need, how many ovens you need, what 
size microwave, it'll be a 27 litre, by the way, what fire regulations you need, what electrical uh, um, uh, systems you need. It is so beautifully written out for you. And when you first download it, it's like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. And then you go, right, big, strong cup of tea. Let's work our way through it. It's like, oh, so all this stuff that I don't understand, I can actually slowly work my way through the information and kind of eat my way through it. And you've laid it out for me. You've spelt it out. If you have these many people, you need this license and you need these many sinks, you know, and these many ovens. And this is the square footage of the shared room. This is the square footage of the bedrooms. Oh, thank you. So although maybe it feels daunting at the beginning, it's not a woo-woo, mystical, secret subject. The council lays it out for you. And then the second thing, having pulled out my first HMO through pure terror, idiot, (laughs) (laughs) um, when I did my first HMO, I phoned up, her name's Bev Green, lovely lady from the council, and said, look, I'm a little bit nervous. This is my first HMO. Do you mind awfully coming out and inspecting? Because I want to get it right. Not a bad idea. First off, the sweetheart brought uh, uh, um, uh, architect's plans of an HMO up the street and said, I thought this would be useful for you. Oh, my God. (laughs) How amazing. And secondly, years later, we had a rat at that property, which does happen every now and again. And obviously, we put in the rat catchers immediately. But the tenant complained to the council. And Bev, literally in my hearing, turned around to her colleague and went, no, I know her. She's a really good landlady. Because, you know, unfortunately, rodents do occasionally happen. So make friends with your councils. So what gave me the idea to do it? Well, I guess it was hearing that HMOs are sensible, you know, that you make good cash flow. It was going to the property events. um, And I was terrified. Um, But I also did a good amount of research. I looked, and, and here's another fascinating thing. I did a, I looked at what the rental income was. And then I, I looked at not just... Um, what my product is, but who are the customers behind my product? And I'm very interested in getting paid. <laughs> I'm very, very interested in not having hassle. Um, so I decided that I wanted top end work uh, tenants. So I realised I needed to produce top end product to match the top end tenants. So right now we are fully booked. And what's beautiful because a large portfolio, we have nobody moving out. And I mean, this is more. I and mean, Katie's just come in downstairs, who runs the lettings. This is on her heard of by the way so a we're fully booked now that often does happen but b we have nobody giving us notice in the next 30 days i mean maybe she'll open the email today and find out somebody else and it's like oh my god it's like calm on a sea because normally people are always moving in and moving out i mean we've done um over 1300 viewings in the first six months on the portfolio um so it's a large portfolio with a large amount of work behind it so I decided top end tenants, top end product. I've got a match, um, um, and I what you know my tenants are kind of by and large you know, on average you know the avatar for them would be they're twenty seven, they're working professionals, they got a reasonably nice car, their computer. I mean I've bought myself a nice computer now, but for years their computers were nicer than mine, their <laughs> phones were nicer than mine. So those guys want you know, Instagram perfect. They want, you know, en suites, you know, they're 27, 30, 32, 25. They don't want to be sharing a bathroom. So I would do four or five uh, en suites within the HMOs so that they're really lovely hotel rooms effectively with a nice shared kitchen and shared shared, uh, living space. And here's the fascinating bit. When I started, I kind of went, oh, I'll just do what the market says. Uh, And I kind of priced my products, my, my rooms similar 
even though I had lovely en suites to everyone else. So I know this was a few years ago, but I was pricing at 400 quid a room. And then Tiffany, who worked with me, you'll see her in a lot of my YouTube videos. Tiffany, who's from Ghana, lovely, glamorous girl. She worked with me and Tiffany's like high end herself, you know, <laughs> nails, legs as long as your arm, beautiful weave. You know, she's glamtastic, right? And Tiffany was like, no, 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 no. So we moved from a portfolio where the average rental was £400 a room to where my top room was £850. I mean, so wow. my my normal room rentals are six seven five six nine five seven two five. I've only got a couple of over the eight hundred mark, um, and that was because she just went no 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 no. She was prepared in the rental market to pay high value, and she reflected that with her marketing. And so it was fascinating. In my, in my early days as an HMO landlord, a lot of my tenants um were folks from Spain, from Italy, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, Eastern Europe. And as she moved us up the value chain without changing the product, because the product was already really good, I was underpricing. Um, um, they became a lot more people with better jobs, if you like, and you know, Audi cars. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So fascinating, isn't it? So I had mismatched on seven P's of marketing the price with the product. And Tiffany came in with her glamtastic painted nails and wonderful weave and went, no, 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 and moved it up the value chain. Wow. And that's that's quite a big movement up the chain. I mean, to have roommates yes. for a room like that, yes. which I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how much flats cost in Bristol, but I guess. 695, 750. For wow. one bed, and my rooms. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, I've got um, a bunch of flats that we're. I think we're renting them out for seven fifty. You know, nice one bed flats. You know, five minutes from the city centre, and I got rooms that rent for more than that. Isn't that mad? That is. I mean, and I'm fully booked. I think that that just shows the value of having a, a very strong product that appeals yes. to your avatar and knowing what they want. Uh, Exactly. And and um, having the strength and conviction and having super uh, photos and having very fast processes of follow up. Mm. I mean, we don't just wait for tenants to come into our lap. We um, message people on spare room. Um, we text where we get texts. We text people immediately. We voicemail people four times and we message them four times before we take them off our list. We, we use bit.ly links and we use smartphones. So we send them out um, and we use open rent, which take, puts us onto Rightmove and Zoopla. And we use the bit.ly links so that, so that we're sending them out. Hey, we saw, you know, all our templates. We saw you're interested in our room. Here's, here's a link, get in touch if you want to book. So, um, But a, t a tenant lead is dead within four days. So it comes in on the Monday morning. They need to be phoned by 11 o'clock Monday. So we're fast. Okay, I like that. And I guess that's the importance of efficiency and process, which we'll talk about in a second. But for the people listening, could you maybe talk us through, I don't know, one or two of your HMO deals in terms of the purchase price, the refurb, and then kind of the end value if you had them revalued. Yeah, sure. Now, this one is one that I use a lot because it was painful. <laughs> <laughs> and I always like to tell you guys the painful stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So this is my, and some of my mentees like, so we've heard about this one. And I think it was just because it was, it was just a little bit far out there. Um, so let's talk multiple pain points, shall we? <laughs> so this is Osborne Road. It's um, in Southfield. Southfield's one, a very hot part of Bristol, and it was up and coming at the time. It's very close to the city centre. Like if you lived in this property, you'll walk, and if you worked in the city centre, you'd have like a 10-minute walk, and part of your walk would be walking over a lovely little 
bridge over a river into the city centre. It's like, oh, you know, lovely. It's cute Victorian, very sweet. All the whole street is painted pastel colours. My house, all my houses that I can paint are painted pastel blue because I like that colour. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one was painful from start to finish, and, and let's share that pain. So um, initially, it was a source deal. I agreed it at one nine seven. Uh, and the reason the lady was selling is she had nine dogs. Nine. Um, she was a, nine. Wow. And she, for whatever reason, known to herself, didn't really let the dogs out. Hmm. And so her neighbours had obtained uh, an order through the council that the dogs could no longer live there. Hmm. Now, she herself, was, I think, was quite a sweet lady, but there was definitely some interesting things going on. And by interesting, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so number one is when I bought um, two, of the, two of the rooms upstairs, the roof had caved in, so she'd simply closed the door, it, ah. you, you know, the, yes, course, as you yeah. do, as and, you do yeah. and retreated. Uh, and then the floorboards downstairs had to be a hundred percent replaced because they smelt so bad and we'll just leave it at that and I hope nobody's having their breakfast (laughs) and bless her when she moved out she actually covered the windows in newspaper and she was such a sweetheart she was like oh I've 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 covered the newspapers the windows in newspapers so that nobody notices it's an empty house and they try and break in and I was thinking sweetheart if they broke in the smell would make them break out so quickly (laughs) (laughs) you know so so I initially agreed for 197 it was sold as a source deal to somebody who um, and what you'll find with investors, they always go through what I call investor wobble. Bear in mind, we did over 200 deals. Uh, uh, now, I bought the majority of those, but we also sold them as source deals. We also did joint venture buy to sell. So quite regularly, we would have investors involved in some of our deals. And when an investor buys a source deal, because we, we used to be a deal packaging company and we earned good money doing that, um, they get investor wobble always, whether they're the most decent person in the world or a little bit aggressive, whether they've got tons of cash or they're doing everything on a bridge. It's called IW. It's official. It's a, it's a disease and it always <laughs> happens. So what I learned very early on was just to tell them they're going to get investable, but not in a kind of let me look down at you, not at all, but just say, look, I tend to notice people get investable. When you do, just phone me, we'll have a chat. Now, when people get frightened, it's fight or flight, isn't it? Yeah. And, I'm, and very rare, but every now and again, you'll get an aggressive investor. Anyway, so this chap, who I thought was a pretty decent guy, got very aggressive and he was incredibly rude to me. Um, I mean, horribly rude to me, you know, sort of saying it wasn't a deal and blah, blah, blah. So my rule is I never pull out of a deal. So he was out the deal. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll buy it. Now I didn't have the money to buy it. Of course not. I mean, none of my houses that I bought, I had the money to buy at the point of purchase. I was always pose running forward, falling forward and pulling in the money as the deal was going through. So I then agreed to buy it. Um, I, uh, she then eventually, she took nine months to find a house and that delay actually really helped me because I didn't have the money to buy it. But I was like, well, I'm buying it because <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't ever say, give back a property to an estate agent because I won't get the next one. It's just a rule, you know those two HMOs that uh, I said no to you know what an idiot but um, and that really fractures relationships with the stations for years it's not fair to them because you're not helping them do their job so okay so I'll buy it so I borrowed the money 100% of the money for 
from um, one of my major private investors. Uh, he had about six million quid and he wanted to put 600 grand every year with me. So he was like, hurry up and buy the deal. Okay. So he gave me a private mortgage and then I borrowed the renovation money, which is about 45 grand from a second private investor because I literally didn't have a penny right at that point. Everything was invested in property. Um, so she took nine months and that definitely assisted me. And in the end, she said, would you mind awfully if we put the price up to 203? It's just what I need for my new house. No problem at all. Because in those nine months, Southville had gone mental. So I did the work, um, bought it for 203, did a 45 grand renovation, and it was revalued within a couple of months at 330, Rick's valuation. So that investor who was, I mean, distressingly rude to me, you know, I worried about it for three or four nights. Um, I did email him with the Rick's valuation just to prove a point. <laughs> <He emailed him. laughs> so, you, so number one, um, people sell for attachment to dogs when, you, you know, um, and what she wanted was number two, people either sell fast because they need the money or or um, they want consistency in prices of less importance. She wanted consistency, took her nine months to find a new house, and I was consistent by it all the way through. Number three, even if you don't have the money, if you've got a very good deal, somebody will lend you the money. And we did it all legally and above board. It was a private mortgage. There was a first charge, um, some second charges and some other properties. And number four, very sadly, every now and again, an investor's going to be a little bit, you know, going to make uh, not very nice I mean we didn't have many we had a few like but less mm. than five investors who were really unpleasant and this was one of them so you've got to you've got to just go well I I'm sure this deal is good I think you know in the nicest way you've you've made a mistake but good luck to you goodbye um <laughs> so two percent of people are nutters and that's whether they're tenants or investors and you've got to take the rough with the smooth Mm. Um, so yeah so it's a five bed HMO it makes uh, it well last year I think it was 20 grand it made in profit it's now uh, I, so I bought it for 203 it's about seven years six seven years later it's now worth over 450 probably 450 475 wow so lots of cash flow lots of capital appreciation yes and it's, it's a high-end product so I think you're winning yes. on all fronts there despite yes. the challenges that were there right but there was some pain, you know. Yeah. There was some pain, and and um, and also the other the other question was, should I buy and sell it? And I think I was going to make seventy or eighty grand at the time. And of course, with you growing the property assets like crazy, you're always cash flow tight. And seventy eighty grand would have been really nice cash flow wise. So should I sell it or should I keep it? And that's always the property investor's dilemma. I want to stretch and grow my asset base, but at the same time, I don't dare run out of cash. So I chose to keep it. Work with private investors which of course cost me money in interest cost so I probably paid more interest in um so there's always a dilemma and the strong advice is buy five keep three sell two buy five keep two sell three I tried to subvert that advice by buying more and then instead of um, selling them although I did do a bunch of sales like I said at one point we had 30 by sales on the go the, what I did was I ran a deal sourcing business at the side to generate additional income but literally every penny of that deal sourcing business went into buying assets mm, okay interesting and, eh? very and then you know what you said before and I know you have a team and they're actually all yes. physically humans you know sitting in your yes. office a lot of people now opt for virtual assistants who are obviously yes. much much cheaper what yes. what influenced your decision to build a physical team in Bristol as opposed to outsourcing it to the world well 
I have both actually. So um, if I tell you a funny story about the letting side, um, we have a chap in Hyderabad who does the scraping um, from, from well, when spare room, they're currently testing out whether they don't give tenant numbers. It's like, no, because that was so good for us. Um, but there's a lovely chap in Hyderabad who um, does the scraping for the tenant numbers, puts them into a spreadsheet and sends out templated texts with the bit.ly links saying, hey, I saw you're looking for room on spare room. Here's our rooms, right? Um, and and he is much cheaper. And and also it, it, it's great for my team because that, that repeating task, which needs a human, uh, can be done. And then my team simply make the phone calls however i forgot you've got to test these these um geo arbitrage links out well and we work, we've worked together for a long time however when he started i forgot to tell him uh, what time he should send the text out so he was sending texts out at six in the morning because of course that was <laughs> when he was working so you can imagine the kind of the kind of responses we were getting they began with f and began with o and then secondly there's the cultural difference so i was emailing him going i just think it's amazing that you're in india and i'm here and you're texting out now he misunderstood that and he included that into the texts so so one of the clues to do is if you're getting somebody communicating third party through geo arbitrage through um, Upwork or Fiverr or anybody else, make sure that you're always included in the communication system. So I got these sample texts at six in the morning going, I love the fact that I'm in India and you're in Britain and here's our room for rent. <laughs> it's like, no! <laughs> so we do have some repeating processes that we outsource for sort of three, four pounds an hour, which would be uh, you know less than fun tasks for my team to do in house. Um, for those guys, they're earning a, a, a price that worked well for them in their economy. And then we have people in house. And I think it's building a team. I love it when a team flows. You know, building a team when the whole of the, the some of the parts is greater than the whole is wonderful. You know, when you sit beside somebody and you go, "Oh my god, I never even thought of that. That's amazing." Like, like a small thing here. Katie last week. Uh, obviously, we've had to pay some licenses for HMOs quite recently with Bristol City Council. I, it's just a form of taxation. They haven't visited one of them to make sure that we're safe. You know, they've just taken a load of money off me. However, there you go, grump over. And Katie just said, Do you know what? I, you know, we've got electrical certificates for everything. So we know that technically we're right. But I want to go out with our electrician and visit all the properties ahead of any inspection from the council. So I feel comfortable that we're good. And I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. I wouldn't have thought of doing that. But I just find when somebody does quality work like that, it's it's better than I could have produced. So we use wealth dynamics now. And for years I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, poo-poo. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, and we identify all of the different roles in our team. And and then we switch, we've actually switched people jobs because we've realized that we're asking somebody to complete a task that is one of their weaknesses, not one of their strengths. And it's really, a, so, so a great example, Katie and Michael in the lettings department. Um, Katie is a mechanic. She's absolutely amazing at being organized. Michael is a star. So he's very, and this may or may not resonate with people if they know anything to do with wealth dynamics. So he's all about the people. So we sort of, 
joke a little bit that Michael's admin is, should we just say not the most perfect? <laughs> and Katie would rather be in deep flow and she doesn't like being interrupted, whereas Michael can handle being inter interrupted all day long with different types of relationships. So we literally said, Katie, you sort out the texts in the morning and you sort out the incoming messages, which is administration, which is her complete strength, then hand the phone to Michael all day long so he can be interrupted and he's not allowed to do the admin on it, but he'll give you the admin. So they get so it works brilliantly because Katie is now in deep flow, which really helps her style of working. And she's amazing. And Michael is all day long talking with people, which is exactly where he should be placed in my business. So, so looking at those kind of personality profiles means that we get the best out of people and hopefully people enjoy their jobs more. Yeah, I like that. I think it's also something that we should do for ourselves. You know, if yes. we think you know when you start a business you're going to do everything you should be good at everything but yes I mean, and you may have to at the very very beginning but if yes. there's any funds and you can get people for three four pounds an hour then yeah. yeah there's no excuse not to work out what you're good and bad at and outsource the yes. things that you don't enjoy because well, life's too short i guess in a way so and you know, forgive yourself for the things you're not good at but i mean and wealth dynamics is written in quite a complimentary way so you're like oh look at this i'm amazing at this Yay. <laughs> and then it's like forgivingly you're not very good at this and i'm like yeah i know but i can forgive myself now whereas previously you're like oh i'm shit at this um, yeah. and and it so for example i'm um i'm gonna sack myself uh, as being so as a start so my profile is very good and very strong uh, it's a creator profile creator star mechanic mm -hmm. so processes come in you know I do talks I teach and creator I like I'm loving I mean the the quality of our mentoring program is superb because I create a lot of processes systems procedures just what we give people is I I just am excited about it because it's it's not shoddy. It's very very deep, um, but but my business is now in in a in a growing its market share. Now that is not a creator star mechanic profile business leader. So we're genuinely having conversations in the business right now. Is I'm going to sack myself from the day to day daily management of the business, and I'm going to be a growing. Uh, both the online and the property development business, because that is my profile. Yeah, of course, play to your strengths. It makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, so obviously you have a lot of experience. Now, if you had to give some advice to people who are maybe just starting out, maybe have a year or two, yes. and again, this is a very broad question, um, what kind of advice would you give them? And I think most of the pain points I get from listeners are finding good deals finding yes. good investors which is basically yes. property those two things um yeah. and maybe a little bit of sort of mental blockers so if you maybe i don't know focus your answer on yes. those bits oh, those three okay yeah. mental block um don't wait to be given permission because you're self-employed now um mm -hmm. so if you if um so people struggle with things like imposter syndrome you know who am i da, 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 da. Um, there's a very good talk by amy cuddy on c-u-d-d-y um uh, on ted talks uh, so go and go and look up that for some physical reinforcement of feeling more confident i give that to my mentees if you feel like who am i, I feel a bit of an imposter i know nothing we all started knowing nothing you know, I gave up my first two HMOs because I was a diddy because I was scared. We're all we're all numpties. You know, don't worry about it. So if you want to give yourself permission, I would definitely say you need to write a business plan. A, because I think strategically you need to write a business plan to know where you're going to place your three resources, time, money and skills. Um, and also 
know where your gaps are because writing fl- writing of a span flushes that stuff out. But B, once you've written a plan and you literally put it up in your kitchen cupboard, your bedroom cupboard, you know, wherever, my plan is on the inside of my, I've, I've uh, a room with clothes in it. And my, my plan is inside that. Every time I get dressed, I see it. You know, and so it's imprinted on my brain. It's also my computer case, and it's also sat beside where I sit in the office as well. So it's in my home, in my mobile working, and in my office. But it gives me permission, if you like. So if you're moving from employed, where someone else tells you what to do, to self-employed, almost you've become your own boss. So you're giving yourself permission to deliver because that's my business plan. And once you've written your business plan, it's like, oh, damn. I better deliver it. So so don't wait to be given permission. And people don't massively care about your if if you're looking for deals or look, looking for investors, it's what you're doing now that counts. Yes, if you've got credibility in history like mine, you know, you can I can trot out 45 million quids source for 30 million quid. Of course people are going to listen to me. But actually, I found investors very early on because I was very active in the marketplace and I was finding good deals. And funnily enough, investors want to get involved in profit-making opportunities. <laughs> so there's your mindset stuff. Give yourself permission. I, I, this is not me being a naughty, but I had a mentor for eight years. And my weightlifting, I, Sonny, who went to the Olympics, uh, has been my coach for years. Um, I tend to find that people who appreciate the value of a coach often do well as well. Now, sourcing discounted deals, it's numbers. Estate agents, so you need a process. And I've written a whole bunch of stuff that you guys can get from my website and there's packs, workshops, all the rest of it. But um, And there's some free checklists that I'm just about to put up as well. Um, so estate agents, it's 100 phone calls, 25 viewings, 21 offers, one or two deals. And typically when people say to me, I can't find deals, it they then think it's them. It's not. We just go, how many phone calls have you made to estate agents? 10. Okay, well, you should technically have 0.1 or 0.2 of a deal now. Because it's mathematics. If you haven't made 100 phone calls, 25 viewings, 21 offers, and you should be popping out one to two deals from that activity. So usually on sourcing deals, it's activity lack, not skill lack. If my guys have then made those calls, uh, viewings, offers, and not getting, then we start to, I ask them to record their phone calls to the estate agents. I ask to look at what properties they're viewing, how they're structuring the offers to see if them their skills are lacking. But 99 times out of 100 is simply lacking activity. One of my favorite moments last year, I hope he doesn't mind me calling him out, Simon Jung, who I loved working with on my online mentoring. He's more an introvert than an extrovert. He's a technical guy. He follows processes. He works really well, deep work, you know, quiet, considered guy. And he got two deals. This was last August. He got two deals under offer. And we we're on the phone going, yeah, rah, so pleased. And I, this is my favorite moment from last year's mentoring. He went, I need to tell everybody on the phone call that I did not enjoy making any one of those 92 phone calls <laughs> to get two deals. But that's what he did. And one of them, I think, made him about 65 grand profit for buy to sell. And the other one, he reckons making just over 20 grand a year on a buy to let. You know, I did not make enjoy making any one of those 92 phone calls in his very measured, calm way. <sighs> So activity on estate agents for deals, that's how you do it. And Simon proved it. And he, he's not a natural, hey, gregarious, let me make loads of phone calls. You know, he's an introvert, which is why it was my favorite moment last year, because he went against his natural bent, did the work, got the result. The th- 
Auctions is one in four. So you'll hear pub talk, which I, people must turn off. As soon as you start going, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, the man down the pub, the dog told me, just turn it off. It's pub talk. It's bullshit. We're looking for the one to 2%. Uh, as soon as people say you can't get deals at auctions, that's pub talk. Turn it off. One in four deals that you go for auction, you will get, statistically speaking. I know because I've bought from auctions for years. So if you're going to auction and only trying to buy one property, you're statistically likely to have a 25% chance, which is not great odds. So I always go to auction if I want to buy one house to try and buy at least four figuring out it doesn't matter which house I get, I'll be happy with any deal that's a good deal out of those four. At one time we we tried to buy thir- yeah, 30 at auction. I was a bit mad. We bought seven, which is roughly one in four, isn't it, as a conversion rate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's your it's deals is a numbers game. One in four houses you statistically try and buy at auction, you should be getting. And 100 phone calls, 25 viewings, 21 offers, one to two deals. So get on with it. <laughs> and then do you want the maths on investors? Yeah. Or yes, please, yeah. <laughs> are you are you hanging in there? Okay? No, no, I love this maths. It's it's such a uh, non-emotional kind of objective yeah. way to look at it, which we need. So please, yes, I'd love yes. to know about investors. Because I think there's the, both the art of property and the science. And mm-hmm. the science is like the skeleton, isn't it? The bones that, that make up the great majority of the body. And then the art is the kind of flesh, the muscles on top. And you've got to get your bones right first, your skeleton right first, and then tweak art, the art side. And I think a lot of people come in and think it's all about them personality-wise. And it's not. You know, you and I will have the same maths if we put the work in. We may have tiny variances to do with our skill set, but the great majority of it is about doing the work. Okay, investors, uh, and again, I because me- I measure everything, which is why we then can turn that out into a training program because we know the maths, um, and which is wonderful, isn't it? Because then it depersonalizes. It's not actually your skill set; it's about your work. And, and have you done the input to get the output? So mm. investors, when you go to property event, again, pub talk, oh, nobody's there with money. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> they are. But what it, what it is, is nobody's going, hey, I've got six mil. <laughs> Come to me. <laughs> you know, they, they don't need to do that. They're observing. So, so um, if you go to property events, and I used to go to one property event a week, every week and grow my database. And, and when I was running a fundraising campaign, one in 10 people at property events have money and are to a degree looking to invest i.e looking for someone else to do the work and them to be relatively passive you need to have between five and nine touch points that don't include email and that don't include text so we're talking agreed like you and i have an agreed touch point today you and i agreed to talk at eight o'clock this morning Mm -hmm. so it's in our diaries we've both committed that time so we've both put, like Beyonce says, if you liked it, you should have put a ring in it. We've both put commitment <laughs> into this relationship. So that is a touch point, if you like. Um, so you need five tonight. So whether it's a coffee, lunch, meeting or agreed telephone call, five to nine touch points. And uh, uh, you've got to ask them, of course. And one in two of those, one in 10 will say yes to you. And one in two of those, one in 10 will say no to you for whatever reason. You just don't gel. They don't gel with you. You might say no to them. You've got to have a veto list. So if we now go back to the top level mass, one in 20 people, if you work a proper fundraising campaign and you're good at sourcing deals, will give you money. 
and on average they will give you 50 grand but they you know they'll vary my um I had somebody that used to give me regularly sort of 200 grand um and people that would give me very small amounts of money but the average will be 50 so now the question is I want to raise half a million how many people do you need to meet that's on average 10 people agreeing to work with you in fundraising so one in 20 will give you the money if you follow the process. So it's 10 times 20, isn't it? 200 people. Well, given that there are 40 or 50 people at most property events, that's like four or five property events if you work the process properly. How long does that take you? Five weeks plus process. I raised 600 grand in 14 weeks when I started. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting and then you know you, you said fundraising campaign yes professionalized yeah by yes. the very nature of you saying that shows that you're doing something different i mean what is yes. a fundraising campaign for the listeners um okay so many of your listeners may have been to property events and I, it's less the fashion now but in in my early days when i was a property baba and um, people used to turn up i mean i'm not knocking them and bless them but they used to turn up with t yellow t-shirts going you know give me money <laughs> You just be like, why would a multimillionaire trust you with that T-shirt? It does doesn't. It you know your packaging isn't resonating with a quality product, even if you might be a quality delivery person. Mm -hmm. um, so I approached it differently. I had, when I'd been at the SS Great Britain, which was is an amazing museum by the way. I was in, recruited as the marketing director, and uh, and then they went, oh by the way, you've also got to raise three million quid, and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> And I had the most amazing fundraising team who taught me everything I need to know needed to know for, for, about fundraising. So they did all the work, all kudos to them. And so it allowed me to understand, I mean, there's Institute of Professional Fundraisers and it allowed me to understand the professional process. So you have a brochure, obviously make sure your lawyer checks it out. We, we've actually got mine on my website now. People can download it. Now they should, they should get the lawyer to check it out just in case. I mean, I got my lawyer to check it out. I don't mind if people copy it word for word. It's there. I'm not fundraising anymore. Go for it guys. You know, it took me weeks and months to put this together uh, to make sure it was right. And it works. So you have a professional brochure. So straight away in those 30 second pitches, you stand out because you've got this beautifully designed professional brochure. You have your legal documents ready because if somebody's like, oh, Suze, I'm kind of interested in lending you money. Can I see the legal docs? And you're like, oh, I haven't actually got them yet. Well, you look like a numpty. You're not serious. So get, you know, and again, we've got, we have to call them sample docs because, you know, I'm not a lawyer, um, but they are the exact legal docs I use, but I have to call them sample docs because I'm not a lawyer. They're on my website. You know, guys, nab them, have them. Um, and uh, then I used to put together a business plan. I, you know, these were the days I was still working. So I, I used to get, show people my salary. I used to show people all of my mortgage statements. I put together a little spreadsheet of my, and at that point I'd maybe had like six houses or something. I was like, Here's, here's my properties, you know. Um, and I would just put together a bunch of documentation so that it would different and different things would resonate with different people. Some people want the detail, some people want the big picture. But by having a package of documents so that when we met, so say, and I'm not asking for money, but say you and I met up and I was like, hey, um, I've prepared a bunch of documents for you. Shall we go through them? It's, it it reduces down the, oh my God, what do we say to each other? 
because now we can talk through the plan. We can talk through how it works. It's very clear you're here uh, looking at proposition to possibly lend me money, either either in joint venture or direct loan. And here's the background information. And it acts as a prop for you to be prompted to ask questions as well. So it's very useful for you. And it makes you stand out because nobody does it. I love that. And would you also say to take that to networking events as well? No. Okay. Because, um, uh, uh, and and when we used to run Investor Days, um, and I didn't mind it really, but I was like, you buggers. I remember one time we'd like... 24 people we used to charge 20 quid for investor days and these were basically people to come up and either look at lending me money or buy source deals from us and I was like right hands up who's here to buy discounted deals and four of them put their hands up and I'm like oh and hands up who's here for the education and 20 of them put their hands up I'm like you buggers (laughs) you're supposed to come on my workshop for that and they just nabbed it so no for two things number one is all you're going to do is you're going to give people within your vicinity the same information although to be fair everybody can download it from my website and go for them guys but number two is what will happen is you will be tempted to get into deep conversations so at networking events the fault inverted commas that people do is they think that they need to raise money there and then no way you have no, you know, you can't judge a book by the cover. You know, think of any deep friendships or good working relationships you've, you've had with people. You didn't meet them within 30 seconds and go, we're going to be great pals or <laughs> you're going to invest with me. No, the whole process took time. So most people, inverted commas, fail at a fundraising campaign because they think they have to raise money on the night. No, the only thing you have to do on the night is collect contact details and and get as many of them as possible and follow up so if you were to go to a property event I want your target to be minimum 10 business cards and ideally 20 Uh, most I got was 150 (laughs) wow I'll tell you how I did it and then I'll tell you why he was cross with me but um (laughs) and then your job is to put about 20 hours in your diary that week and follow every single person up to voicemail five now normal british society i'd phone you you'd phone me back yeah but remember you're dealing with people who are also probably trying to get out their day job they're super busy they're probably in the washing machine chaos of an early startup property business they don't know what's in it for them what's in it for me from your phone call so they probably mean to phone you back but they're already doing a day job plus property on top plus the family plus 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 so your job is to be their pa phone them to voicemail five what does that mean, voicemail five? Uh, you phone them and you've left five voicemails and probably sent them five texts saying, hey, just giving you a quick bell. Love to have a chat. Met you at this property event. Uh, and if after voicemail five, they don't reply, okay, they probably don't have time or want to phone, phone you back. Yeah. And the reason I learned this is early on, years and years and years ago, before I got my mentor, Vanish Patel, with whom I worked for eight years, who's fantastic, I met one of the early apprentices when, when the apprentice was still very much a business um, a business um, a program, Ruth Badger, <laughs> and she was amazing at John Cox's uh, a box property meet, which was a sterling property meet, a very high quality property meet. And I fully intended to mentor with her, but I was so busy in my business, like 100% mentally had committed to, to the money. I was going to do it, absolutely. I was going to start with a one-day workshop. And I was so busy that her team only phoned me once, and so she lost the business. Now, that was with 100% mental commitment my end. And so it taught me that 
when people are in the early stages, your potential investors, you have to be their PA. You can't rely on a 50-50. So if you were to take all your material to an event, you'll be super tempted to go deep and you'll get three business cards and two of them will be nicking your ideas anyway. So what was the point in that? Whereas if you get 10, 20, 30, 40 business cards, all of the work is outside. All of the work in raising finances is the follow-on processes, not the night itself. And I think people make the fundamental mistake, oh, I met some investors. Did you? You just met some people who said, yeah, I'd love to have deals. Let's do the follow process. Mm, always follow up. I love that. Yes. And- you know, for again, for people who are kind of maybe like starting out in property, who are like, oh my God, there's, there's 101 strategies. Yes. What do I do? I think the most common one is probably rent to rent or, ah. or, <laughs> or, or deal sourcing. So we've covered kind of deal sourcing, but with rent to yes. rent. Oh, can we just for a tiny second, I'm so sorry, but deal sourcing, please do not undercharge people. Please do not. Um, most like, and then I'll come back to rent, rent, and I'll actually like stop interrupting you. But <laughs> deal sourcing people undercharge all the time, and therefore they can't make it a proper business with staff and team. Deal sourcing is a huge amount of work. If somebody charges one or two percent or two grand, when you know somebody's getting a seventy-five grand discount, like we had no price. No price problem at all. We charge 5%. 95 to 99% of our deals we sold within 30 seconds. Wow. And we charged a £1,000 to be part of our group. And we made them come to two property events, two investor days before we even allowed them to join our group. So all of the trust work was done without the shiny excitement of a deal. It was like, take your time before you join us. But then you see, I was able to employ a conveyancer three days a week. I was able to employ a full-time sourcer. I was able to employ a project manager. And, and therefore, by and large, my guy's got good service, great quality deals, 45 million quids worth of property for 30 million quids. If I had not been able to employ a team, a whole bunch of people wouldn't have been made rich and I'd have, you know, expired on the pavement <laughs> with crazy overwork. And that's because so many people undercharge. So please don't undercharge. Anyway, sorry, back to your question. Mm. That, that, that's a good point, though. Um, and I'll also caveat that and saying, don't be a shit saucer. Because if you're oh, a shit saucer, then, then you don't deserve to charge anything. Anyway, 100%, 100%. Um, so rent to rent is probably the most common and the most sort of uh, the quickest way to yes. get some cash flow. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I need to put a caveat in saying um, somebody I admire and respect and like and I consider a friend, Francis Dolly, does great rent to rent. Mm -hmm. So he does it right. Absolutely. Superb guy, superb systems, good business. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if we, um, so I'm not, um, so, but generally, my view on, and I've, you know, I like Francis, we're, we're best of the West down here, and he's a great guy, but, and his business is great. But generally, my view on rent to rent is, it's, it's a rat race. Um, I did uh, some, it's, it's, you're not buying assets. So you're not getting, you know, most of my properties have doubled in the last 10 years. I sat there and didn't do anything. You're not buying assets. You're not, you, you you have to basically run a glorified letting agency and you're in between the landlord and in between the tenant. So you're arguing with the tenant about light bulbs, you're arguing with the landlord about repairs. You don't own the asset. Theoretically, you know, the landlord might do something really stupid financially and the asset get repossessed or the landlord might at the end of your agreement take it back and just go, oh, I'll have the money myself. And you're on, a, you're on the little hamster wheel. Where's the asset? 
Where's the thing that will give you financial freedom in the long run? So it's the structural part of the business that I don't like. I want the reason people go into rent to rent is because it's low barrier to entry. And I fully understand that, but you've got to take the pain somewhere. So I would much rather people learn how to source discounted deals well, as you say, don't be a bad sourcer, and learn to work with investors and took the inverted commas pain early, which is, oh God, I'm British and I hate asking for money and I'm going to have to work really hard and do all these numbers Susan's told me about to buy deals than later on take the pain and go, I've just run a rent to rent for 10 years like Suze has bought a portfolio and is retired and, you know, resuming around the world, but I got to keep working. So there is a pain point somewhere and I would rather my lot took it early and bought assets and didn't have a pain point later. Okay. So then would you say for people who are, you know, brand new with not so much money who are looking to get into property should, should sort of go straight into buying assets and the yes. money part, they should do what we said before, which is find investors. Yes. So get very, 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 very good at sourcing discounted deals. You, you can't, you, you know, you can't bullshit the figures. The deals have to be excellent. And, and pull, you know, my first investor meeting, I was terrified. Honestly, it was a plate of biscuits. Six people sat around my kitchen table and Ash and I were working together at that point off, off my kitchen table. I was going, what am I going to say? Oh my God. <laughs> you know. And I still, you know, for many years, I worked with four of those six investors. You know, I'm still really good friends with them. Um, and it was like a plate of biscuits and plonked down a cup of tea and went, ah, oh, so, uh, so this is the plan, <laughs> you know, um, but because we were very good at finding discounted assets. And if you go back to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure almost all your listeners have read, mm -hmm. it is you move from employed to self-employed to business owner to investor. Well, you can only be an investor with an asset. Yeah. Interesting. That's freedom. Okay. Well, I like that. And I think that's, that's, you know, one of the reasons I didn't do rent to rent in the beginning. Uh, I nearly because did because assets. Yeah, I think it's everything you said. It's assets. It's capital appreciation. It's yes. It was the thing about the the stress and headache of having to actively manage tenants, which is the last thing I probably want to do and probably yes. should do um, as one of my strengths or weaknesses. So, no, I totally get what you're saying there. Yes. And uh, so, another thing is you obviously teach people. You run courses now. A yeah. lot of my listeners will know that. And you know, there's so many education providers out there. Yeah. From your perspective, how should people judge or decide who to get education from? Like, how can people mm. sort through the minefield? Yes. Well, I think people, and unfortunately, people will continue to do this, shouldn't buy on emotion. But unfortunately, people do, which is why you see all those pretty nasty you know increase your credit card score this is a deal for only the first 10 people run to the back of the room mm -hmm. um you know normally it's 30 grand today it's 1997 <laughs> you've got to get it now because that's a judge on scarcity on emotion and that's not a if this is a, if this is going to be your future you, you know like i am so grateful i have this asset base I'm so unbelievably grateful that I don't ever need to have another job. I could stop tomorrow if I want, but actually, as you can tell, I'm really loving and doing it. I can travel. I'm so grateful because it's it's life-changing. So if this is going to be the thing that changes your life, then take your time. 
you know, um, it's a marathon, not a sprint, as my mentor used to say to me. And I'd be like, yeah, but I won it all yesterday, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is the emotional side. And take your time and actually do some proper judging. And I think it's a real shame when people go to free events and then get slightly sucker punched into an emotional move, which doesn't always have deep quality. And it frustrates me as a quality provider. I, I get very cross about it, but I shan't remain cross on your podcast. <laughs> um, and I also get very, very cross because we would never take somebody on that we didn't believe would succeed. Uh, um, I, I particularly remember, and I shan't name people because I don't think naming and shaming is correct. Because, But um, I remember an Iranian refugee lady who supported uh, most of her family back home being sucker punched into a two and a half grand weekend and the the people in question refusing to give back her money because she decided it wasn't the right thing for her. and I think that was the correct decision for her saying you need to come to the weekend well at that point she's emotionally drawn in she spent hotel money you know it's very difficult as a social animal to stand up and say I still want my money back you know and she was a meek timid soul um, I felt very very angry on her behalf um, because she was vulnerable and that's not fair. So what I, th- I hope people do is take intelligent choices. So number one, has the person, well, let's just move it over to sport. You, you know, my weightlifting coach went to the Olympics. My weightlifting coach went to, it was British champion repeatedly and went to the Commonwealth Games. So number one, has that person got deep experience I don't just mean have they found some discounted deals and have they raised some money. That's brilliant. But if you've done 10 deals, you've not made enough screw ups to know how to save your mentees or the people on your workshops when they're heading down a screw up because you haven't screwed up enough and then saved the day. Do you see what I mean? You haven't almost statistically seen enough investor behavior like that painful man behavior to understand that there are non-committals and there are prima donnas and 2% of your investors are needing to be put on the veto list and you need to save your mentees fast from dealing with rather unpleasant people. Um, So number one, I definitely want anybody making a choice to really be sure that the people who are actually doing the teaching have done enough statistical numbers that they've probably faced almost any situation you're about to face so that they, they, they have experience. Number two, are they doing the strategy that you feel is the right strategy for you? Number three, are they straightforward and honest? And is what you can glean of them so far very value giving, i.e. if you're going to pay them some money, do you anticipate making an awful lot more as a result of the investment in the first place? If not, don't do it. Yeah. And, and, you know, what you said about take your time, all these deals and all these reductions that these courses give is bullshit. They always yes. have them. It's not just now. So you yes. can think about it, go back, call them up and haggle a deal if if you really, you know, want that one. So don't do it instantly. Yes. Um, you know, so so go on. Quality measurement, isn't it? And it is very difficult to judge. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we've got the YouTube channel. Um, it's it's a long tail of, of evidence. So on the one hand, we've got the long tail of evidence, you know, 200 odd deals, uh, 45 million quid's worth of property. But um, I mean, I'm actually doing a whole series of deals now just to show that evidence. But unless you came into my office and flicked through my folders with those 200 deals, uh, you got my word for it, if you see what I mean. Um, by but we've been we've got over a thousand YouTube vids and we publish every day a new free YouTube vid. It's a long tail of evidence to show that my knowledge will be valuable to the person. And we don't take everybody on. We only take on people we feel have got a very strong chance of succeeding 
because otherwise I personally think that um uh, oh, that's that's a piece of land that just sold by the way people as <laughs> the agent phoning me uh, otherwise we feel that they it's not fair in that person it's not fun for me and it's it's taking up my time and their time and their money and it doesn't you know it's not fair it's not fair to everybody um so we do do some screening absolutely awesome well Susanna we've reached the end of the podcast and I have ah. a feeling there's probably a lot more you could share so we should do this again to. sometime I'd love to we could talk about lands we could talk about planning oh All definitely that kind See, of stuff would be so much there's, fun there's loads we can talk about so we'll, we'll get that arranged but for now yes. if people want to get hold of you or you know follow what you're doing what, where's the best place to find you I think the most, if they want to, if they want to get tons of free information, um, probably go on to either the YouTube channel, which is the Good Property Company, Susanna Cole. Uh, I've divided it into playlists. So if they're like, I need to know about raising money, go in that playlist. I need to find out deals, go in that playlist. If they want to do renovation, go in that playlist. It, so the YouTube channel is probably the best resource for free resources. Another really strong resource is my website, thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk. I've got tons of free stuff on there and obviously a whole bunch of downloadable online materials as well. Or they can give us a phone. We love chatting. 0117-942-8914 or email on into us at info at thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk and we'll say hi back. Amazing. But there's also Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Instagram stories. <laughs> yep, no, definitely. <laughs> all of that stuff. There's definitely some interesting Instagram stories. I recommend that everyone go in, follow you, and I'll put all the links uh, into you. the show notes as well. So, Susanna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I feel like we've started. We could, we could keep going, <laughs> couldn't we? And thank you very, very much for having me. It's very kind of you. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.